So I think that Amazon is ruining everything. Can I get an amen? Man. It is. Um, I, I, uh, I have become kind of a book junkie, like um, an avid reader. And it's funny saying that because growing up, I was not like that way at all. I actually didn't like reading. Um, I'll never forget being forced to read elementary, middle school, high school. And finally, I, I got a book that I liked. It was in seventh grade. I read John Grisham's The Chamber, which for a seventh grader is probably not the first book to start with, with John Grisham. But anyway, um, I read that book and I was like, that's it. If that's what lawyers do, I want to be a lawyer. Which, of course, lawyers in John Grisham books is not what lawyers actually do. But anyway, that's what I thought. So I want to be a lawyer. So I started job shadowing different lawyers and learning from them. And then I'll never forget the time when I was talking to a friend who was a lawyer. A friend. It was my dad's friend. And um, he said, well, if you want to be a lawyer, you better like reading. Because lawyers, that's all they do is just read. And I thought, yeah, I'm out. And yet through like middle school, high school, in the college, I started kind of falling in love with reading again and re- recognizing that leaders read. Leaders are readers. And that was something that I felt like God was calling me to. And I was like, I got to figure this thing out. So started reading. And then now I've kind of become this book junkie, which has led to this love-hate relationship with Amazon. Um, I can't stand Amazon. It's changing the world. Like I love going into a bookstore, looking at books perusing the shelves, finding one, taking it, buying it, and then leaving with it in hand to start reading that day. Okay. Now Amazon's like killing local bookstores and you can't find them anymore. And you now you know about all these books and you order them online and you got to wait. Like I'm not a purist. It's not like I'm like, oh, let's go back to the good old days. No, I just don't like waiting. That's it. That's all it is, is I don't like waiting for the books. Like I go on through Amazon, then you click it and you put it in the shopping cart and it appears. And then you hit proceed to check out, check out. And then you got to wait five to seven business days for the book to come. Get prime. prime. Josh, in my manuscript, it says, so you get Amazon prime. (laughs) That's what, yeah, get Amazon prime. It comes in two days this week. I waited the whole week for my book. I was waiting, waiting, waiting. It came a day early. I was like, <gasps> so I went to the mailbox. It wasn't Amazon Prime. Um, I went to the mailbox. I opened up the package, and it was something that Monica ordered. I didn't know about. It's like, are you kidding me? Come on! But that's what waiting does. Waiting forces us to acknowledge what we believe about the thing we're waiting for. Maybe it's like that will solve. Our deepest, it will satisfy our deepest desires. It will, it will fix all of our problems. Or that, that will make us feel good. It will bring success in our lives. And we wait because we believe that what we're waiting for, it's going to make the current reality that we're living in, it's going to fix it. Like it's going to help overcome this less than ideal life we're living. And it's going to help us get close to the ideal of where we're trying to be. It's going to fix here and get us closer to there. And so I can't help but just ask, what are you waiting for? Or better yet, let's ask it this way. What are you yearning for? Because yearning reveals hope. Yearning reveals hope. If I yearn for a promotion, my hope is in success. If I yearn for a spouse, my hope is in relationships. And if I yearn for another another hit or another shot of something, my hope is in pain relief. Escape. 
You see, yearning reveals hope, and it reveals to us what we place our hope in. And what we place our hope in shows us ultimately what we worship. Hall of Fame quarterback Troy Aitman, after he won his first Super Bowl for the greatest franchise of all time, the Dallas Cowboys. That's over here. Um, after he won his first Super Bowl, he didn't go out with the team and party and celebrate. He went to his hotel room, he ordered a beer, and he drank it alone. Because he told a reporter later, I just couldn't help but think about when I was waiting to turn 16. Like I thought, when I turn 16, then I'll have my license. Then my world will be different. Then I'll have a Then I'll be able to have freedom and autonomy. I'll be able to go hang out with friends and, and then life will get better. And then that happened and then there was the next thing. I can't wait till I graduate. Can't wait till I get to college. Can't wait till I figure out my career. Can't wait till I graduate from college. Can't wait till I find a spouse. And he said, finally, now here I am sitting at the top of my professional career, winning the Super Bowl. And all I can help, all, I can't help but think, what's next? Is this it? Alexander the Great, when he, had conquered, when he looked out over his vast kingdom, and the moment he realized that there are no more worlds or nations to conquer, he sat down and wept. That's what yearning does for the things in this world. We get one Amazon package and we open that up and it's so exciting. Then we get another one, and then we, and, but it only lasts so long. And then we have to order another one. And then we get another one and it's another. And no matter how big, no matter how precious that is, it's never enough. What are you yearning for? Is it someone to acknowledge that you're doing a good job? Is it a friend? Is it a high? Is it for more or better sex? Is it for the pain to stop or the good times to start? What are you yearning for? You see, yearning reveals hope. So what are you putting your hope in? See, in this upside down world, John pulls back the veil in the book of Revelation and he shows us the, the thing that we're supposed to be yearning for, what we're supposed to be waiting for, what we're supposed to be stretching and leaning towards. In the book of Revelation, starting the very end, Revelation 22, you see this yearn that he, he, he paints a picture of in verse 20. It says this, come, Lord Jesus. Come. I'm yearning for Jesus to come now, for heaven now. I'm leaning into it. Now, to be honest, I didn't grow up yearning for Jesus to come back, for heaven to come. There's a story about a preacher standing up in front of his congregation, and he said, who wants to go to heaven when they die? Who wants to go to heaven? Everyone, stand up if, if you want to go to heaven. And the whole congregation stood up except for one little boy. So the preacher looked at the little boy. He said, young man, do you not want to go to heaven when you die? He said, oh, yeah, I do when I die. I just thought you were getting a group to go now. <laughs> it's like, like, that's, like, that's, to be honest, that's how I felt for so long. Like, I want to go to heaven when I die, but not now. Like there's so much life I want to experience. I want to explore the world. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to have a career. I want to live life to the full. Not yet, not heaven yet. Because for me, I didn't desire heaven because heaven was kind of weird. Right? It's kind of like my picture of heaven actually wasn't a biblical picture of heaven. It was a cultural picture of heaven. That I would die and my soul would leave my body and go up to the kind of the clouds I'd have a robe on, 
play a harp, sing in a choir. Nothing wrong with playing a harp or singing in a choir. It's just not for me. And I just do that, you know, for forever, just kind of in this ethereal cloud, spiritual realm. And that's not the picture that we're given in heaven that the book of Revelation reveals to us that this thing that we're supposed to be praying and yearning for, come Lord Jesus, bring that about. There's actually three pictures we get of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22. They're beautiful pictures. Let me, let me read these to you today. Here's, here's the first picture of heaven that we get. John, uh, Revelation 21 verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see, it's not just a new heaven. God's not done with this place. He's going to make earth new. This isn't like this place is gone and we're all in this ethereal. No, earth is going to exist in the afterlife. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You hear that? Not us going up, but the holy city coming down. Coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God, I always, by the way, I always hear James Earl Jones' voice when it's God. If that helps you, that helps me. Look, I wanted to impersonate him, but I can't do it. Look, nope, it's not good. Look, God's dwelling. His place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. Somebody need that word today? Someone that you know, that you love that's gone because of death. In heaven, there's no more death. No more mourning. No more crying or pain. For what does it say? The old order of things has passed away. And the voice who seated on the throne said these wonderful, beautiful words, I am making everything new. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you pray that prayer? It's a beautiful picture of heaven. God dwelling with us, and the bride and the groom, this covenantal relationship that we have with God that we're finally dwelling together forever. But I don't want to point out the, 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 the things that are in heaven, the, the, the analogies and the metaphors that John uses for this vision. Not, not that what, what is there, but look at what's not in heaven. Did you catch it? It says this, and there was no longer any sea. Heaven, there's no more sea. Now, in the ancient world, the sea was the center of, well, this idea of chaos. It was mysterious. It was dangerous. It was untamable. Even today, in, in our world of, of discovery and technology, the best numbers say that we have explored around 5% of the ocean. 95% of the ocean is unexplored. 99% of the ocean floor is unexplored. Talk about mysterious and unknown. That's today. Think about thousands of years ago. The sea was this mysterious, dangerous place. It was the center of chaos in the world. And this idea of heaven, there's no more sea. It's basically saying there's no more confusion. There's no more gray. No more mystery. No more danger. It's like Jesus in the boat with the storms and the waves around him. It's quiet. Be still. John Ortberg, he describes kind of that reality of no more sea, a life without chaos, a life without mystery, a life without danger this way. He says, in a world with no more sea, 
All marriages would be healthy and all children would be safe. Those who have too much would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. Their parents would build homes for one another. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives will secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. There would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would really have useful jobs, is what he said. I, I have some great friends that are lawyers, and so I'm sorry, but that's funny. Um, but they would really have useful jobs, like delivering pizza, which would be no f- non-fat and low in cholesterol, right? Amen. Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarms. Schools would no longer need police presence or even hall monitors. Students and teachers and janitors would honor and value one another's work. And at recess, every kid would get picked for the team. Churches would never split. People would neither be bored nor hurried. No father would ever again say, I'm too busy to a disappointed child. Divorce courts and battered women's shelters would be turned into community recreation centers. Every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection, and delight. No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. They would honor and be enriched by their differences and be united in their common humanity. And in the center of the entire community will be its magnificent architect and most glorious resident, God himself. I can pray that prayer for that reality. Please come, Lord Jesus. No more sea. That's the good news of the gospel, is that God does not remain distant from his creation, but the creator entered into the creation. And Jesus said, listen, let me establish for you reality without sea today, without chaos today, without mystery today, by revealing to you, by unveiling you, by putting on flesh and showing you, look, come follow me. And I will change you. I will transform you to be Fishers of men, to be on mission with me. Come follow me. Let me help guide you through the chaos of life. See, every single one of us, we yearn for harmony. We yearn for peace on earth, for heaven on earth, a reality with no more sea. Now, if that's what you're yearning for, what's your hope in? Remember, yearning reveals hope. Because Jesus comes and says, listen, put your hope in me. Let me show you what life is like with no sea. There's another picture we get in Revelation, this, this second one. It's, it starts in verse 9. It says this, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, and all of that I think really is just talking about how this is, you know, we've had the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and the seven thunders. This is just like, hey, seven last plagues. This is it. This is the final picture here. And he came and he said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me, this is John speaking, away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me, not you would think you'd show him the bride, but he didn't. Show them the holy city, Jerusalem. This is when you realize that the bride is the city. The same thing, there's two different metaphors. The bride and the city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You get this beautiful picture of the city described in these next verses where you see that this city is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ are, are the people of God, the church. And so this city has to do with the people of God. And you'll see that all throughout these numbers that they talks about describing the city. It's God's people. There's 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. Number 12 is important in the Bible, isn't it? It's 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, 12 disciples, the people of God, 12 foundations the city has with 12 apostles, names written on the foundations. The wall was 144 cubits thick. 
I had to pull out a calculator, but 144 divided by 12. 12 times 12 is 144. This, is, this whole thing is about the people of God. 12, 12, 12, 12. This is where the people of God are. This city is made of jasper, pure gold, as pure as glass. And there are all kinds of jewels mentioned, the pearly gates, the streets of gold. It's a fantastic city. It's a city that's like, I want to be a part of that city. But don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss all the detail and the description of, of this city with what's not in the city. It's, we see it in verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See, the first image of heaven we're given is that there's no more sea. Chaos is gone. But then the second image of heaven we're given is that there's no more temple. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important? It goes back to, really, God's, uh, God's creation of the world and his beginning of his relationship with his creation. Genesis 1, God created the world. It was good. He looked at it and looked at man and said, it's very good. And then yet man and women rebelled against God and said, we are going to live life our way. And that's what brought about life in the sea, life in chaos. So yeah, we're not going to follow God and the way he created this thing to be. We're going to do it on our own. We're going to figure this out on our own. And because of that, we brought not heaven on earth, but hell on earth is our reality. We make decisions that hurt ourselves and those around us. And we cause pain and we cause suffering and we cause injustice in this world. And because of that, God cast us out of the garden, away from living life in a whole, pure, good relationship with him. Because we couldn't live in the midst of his holiness because his justice would demand judgment. Now, in order for him, though, to continue to pursue us, because God, our God is a God who pursues us and loves us and has not given up on us. He established for hundreds of years the temple, or when they were wandering in the, in the wilderness, the Israelites had the tabernacle, a tent. Okay? But this temple was this place where God dwelled. His very presence dwelled in the midst of his people. And what's interesting is that, that, that very inside the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was, was actually a perfect cube. It was as wide as it was long and tall and deep. Perfect cube. And if you look at the measurements of the city in Revelation 21, it's a perfect cube. Hmm. I don't think that was an accident. See, this place was the place where God dwelled, the Holy of Holies. And no one could ever come into the Holy of Holies. No priest, no matter what. No matter, Jew, if you're bringing in your animal sacrifice, you can't be in the presence of God because that would demand judgment on your sin and on you. Except for one time a year, the Day of Atonement, when the chief priest would come into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And this happened every year. And there were hundreds of sacrifices that happened all throughout the year, thousands of sacrifices and the sacrifice would be God's judgment on it instead of on the people to make his whole relationship with his humanity right and good. And the chief priest would enter the, the Holy of Holies and he would have a rope tied around his ankle with some bells in case when he entered in, he didn't do the, the purification rights thing right. And he goes in and he dies. And they could draw him out, right, pull him out. So no one else had to go in there and die. Anyone want to volunteer for that role? That's way better, you know, volunteering for our children's ministry, right? Like, like, go, go do that. We need you to volunteer there too, okay? Like, at least you're not doing that, you know, guy going in there. Um, but this is the temple. Talk about separation from God. Fear of God. But then came this beautiful verse, John 1, verse 14. It says this, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling. The word used for dwelling is the same word for tabernacle, 
the idea of temple. God made his temple among us. And when Jesus died on the cross, all the judgment and the wrath of God, the justice of God came upon Jesus. He was our substitute. He died in our place for our sins on the tree. And the moment that he died, the curtain of the temple that had separated the Holy of Holies from everybody else, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Like God grabbed a hold of the top of it and ripped it apart. And he said, it's done. It's finished. No more. And he invites everyone to come to his city. The gates aren't shut. They're wide open. There's no more barrier anymore between you and God. The guilt that you have because of what you've done, that shame, it's gone at the foot of the cross. C.S. Lewis, he describes it this way, that we're yearning not just for harmony, but we're yearning for intimacy with our creator. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food the satisfaction for that desire. A duckling wants to swim. They have that desire, but guess what? There's such a thing as water, the satisfaction for that desire. When he said this, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Here's the reality. Both, every single one of us are yearning for these two things. We're yearning to be fully known as who we are today. And we're yearning to be fully loved. And in our sinful condition, we don't think we can have those two. Like if someone's going to truly love me, I can't let them know everything about me. I've got to keep some things locked in a skeleton, in a closet, deep within the recesses of my mind and my heart. Because, I mean, if they know that about me, there's no way they can love me. But then I can't be fully known. And there's this war inside of us. But at the foot of the cross, both of those things become reality, not just with people, but with your creator. He, fully, he already fully knows you. And at the cross, he shows you, I fully love you just as you are. Guilt is gone. Justice is on Jesus. And you are welcomed into the city of God as the people of faith, the people of the kingdom. This is only possible through Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, yearning reveals your hope and your strongest yearning to be fully loved and fully known. The only sole hope where that can truly become a reality is in Jesus. On the cross, where your sins, where your shame, what's been done to you, the fear of being accepted, it's all done away at the cross. Jesus got up on the cross. He said, it's done. It's finished. It's over. Sin is destroyed. And you are welcome. No more sea. No more temple. And then we get this one last picture of heaven. Are you yearning for it yet? Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. You see, the book ends how it begins. Genesis 1, you get a river. Revelation 22, you get a river. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Oh, this is a garden in the middle of a city. This is like central part, heaven, okay? On each side of the river stood the tree of life. There's a tree of life at the beginning of the Bible. There's a tree of life at the end of the Bible, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That includes you. That's for your healing. That's for my healing. That's for the healing of every flag up here in this worship center. Every aspect and result of sin. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face 
and his name will be written on their foreheads. The whole Bible begins with the garden and it ends with the garden. It begins with the tree of life and it ends with the tree of life because here's the reality. God recovers his creation. He doesn't do away with it, but he wins it back. He restores it to what it always intended it to be. But did you catch what wasn't there? We had no more sea, we have no more temple, but here we have no more curse. No more curse. See, when God created the world and it was good, when we sinned against him, this world, our existence was cursed. I don't think we know all the ramifications of the curse in our life. The way we think because of our guilt, the, the emotions that we feel because of our shame, the behaviors that we engage in because we're so afraid. All of these things in the subconscious and the deep recesses of our mind are because this reality and this existence is cursed because of sin. And it's not just what we do to others. I mean, man, we bring about the curse. We live in this upside down world. We, 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 we contribute to it, don't we? A world where daughters hate their mothers. A world where more harsh words are spoken than kind words. A world where kids are abused, men are addicted, and women are assaulted. But it isn't just upside down the things we do to each other. It's just the reality and the existence of life today. It's a fallen world, a world where miscarriages occur. A world where wildfires destroy homes. A world where caskets exist because people die. It's not how God intended it to be. But here's the picture of heaven. It's not an upside down world. It's a world with no more curse. Can you imagine that? God's making everything new. Can you picture the news with no more results of the curse to report? There's so many aspects of the curse we don't even understand. But imagine that life. No natural disasters. No death. No pain. No sea. No temple. No curse. William Dyke was a handsome young man that at the age of 10 lost his sight because of a tragic accident. And yet he didn't allow his handicap to keep him from living life to the full. And in high school and college, he had this zeal and zest for life that led him to winning the heart of a woman who was the daughter of a British admiral. And when he went to ask the British admiral for her hand in marriage, he had one condition. He said, would you consider getting a potentially dangerous surgery to see if you could get your sight recovered? And William agreed with one condition. He said, I'll go through the surgery as long as the gauze and the strips of linen around my head remain in place until the day of my wedding. Because I want the first thing I see to be the face of my bride. Okay, I kind of expected like an awe from the people in the room. I mean, come on! Like, I'm killing it up here with this cool story. Let's get, let's get some audience participation here, okay? Let's, let's try this, okay? So, um, whew. so the surgery happened and the wedding day came. And William's father is standing next to him and, and the British Admiral marches down his daughter down the aisle. And as he gets closer and closer, they begin taking strips of linen off of his face. And no one knows if the surgery was successful or not. And everyone's waiting with bated breath to see what happens. The moment she gets right in front of him, the cloth comes off of his eyes and he opens his eyes and he says the words that will never be forgotten from that day. You are more beautiful than I imagined. There we go. Yes, good job. That story can be your story. 
Heaven is going to be more better and great and significant and, 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 trans, and, and beautiful than you could ever possibly imagine. No more sea. Like it's gone. No more chaos. No more confusion. No more temple. Like Jesus' death took care of that. No guilt, no shame, no fear in your life. It's all gone. You don't feel unclean anymore. You are clean. You are purified. You are made. And then guess what? No more curse. Jesus is going to make it all new. It's all done away with. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. That, can you pray that prayer today? Come, Lord Jesus, come. And so we wait. We wait for that day. We yearn for it because we, our yearning is for our hope and the right kind of Savior. Well, I'll be honest with you. If that's the message of the book of Revelation 21 and 22, I'm left a little flat. Because I'm like, so, so basically, my, my, what, what I, I mean, the whole series is about how do I live a life right side up in an upside down world? And you're telling me, preacher, wait. Like, wait for the Amazon package to show up at the door. Like, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be big. It's going to be expensive. But you just, there's no Amazon Prime, but you just got to wait. It's like, Really? Well, the beautiful thing is, that's not, that thing is that's not where the book ends. After these three pictures of heaven, John has an interaction with the angel. And the angel gives him a message from Jesus. And it says this in verse 7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy written in this scroll. See, the book ends where it begins. With a blessing. Blessed are the ones who obey who heed, who apply the prophecy, who make the reality come about today. Here's what I came to say today. Yearning for heaven on earth leads to bringing about heaven on earth. If you yearn for heaven correctly, then you bring it about correctly in your life. Yearning, the right way to yearn for harmony in your relationships in heaven is to work to bring about harmony on earth. The right way to yearn for intimacy with God in heaven is to work to pursue intimacy with God on earth. The right way to yearn for recovery from a fallen world in heaven is to fight for recovery from a fallen world on earth. You see, yearning for heaven on earth leads to bringing about heaven on earth. There's a story Eugene Peterson tells of uh, his daughter expecting a child. She's pregnant. And um, he, uh, he tells his wife, they go visit them, you know, after like they announce it, make the announcement that they're expecting. And they go and they visit him. It's been a month or two and they come back home. And on the drive home, he's just like, you know, I just, it doesn't feel like anything's changing. Like it doesn't feel like she's pregnant. And his wife said, well, you're waiting wrong. How can I be waiting wrong? That's all I'm doing is waiting. She said, no, she said, nothing about your day-to-day -day life is changing because you're waiting for this baby to come. So you're not getting a nursery ready. You're not painting walls. You're not baby-proofing your house. You're not shopping for clothes and, and stacking up on diapers and all the wipes and all of that stuff. She said, your, your belly's not getting any bigger. Well, it actually might, but that's for a different reason. You're not waiting right. So what did he do? He started building a crib. And every day he'd go out to the garage, buy the wood, get the plans. He would start sanding it, carving it, assembling it, putting it together, painting it, staining it. 
And boy, when that day came, he was ready. Perhaps for you, it's, you're not waiting right for heaven. It's not like a package is going to show up on a door one day and here it is. You've got to yearn for it. And yearning for heaven leads to bringing about heaven. And the only way, is, and, and what I love about the book is, how, uh, is what happens next because John, he thinks, I'm gonna, I, I gotta worship something. Like I'm yearning for something, I gotta worship something. So he tries to worship the angel. The angel's like, don't worship me. And that's a message to you today. Don't worship your yearning for no more sea or no more temple or no more curse because those things are leading to the thing that you're worshiping. Jesus is the answer to every single one. Like no more seed, come follow the life of Jesus. No more temple, come, come worship Jesus at the cross and the death of Jesus, taking on your suffering and the justice of God and worship the, the resurrection of Jesus that he comes and he brings about a new reality and a new life with no more curse. Don't worship. If you want to yearn for heaven, right? And you want to bring about heaven on earth. Do what the angel told John to do. Worship God. So let's stand and do that today.